0: Let us pray. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and obey what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. The first scripture reading today comes from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. It's nice to be here this morning. Again, I appreciate the invitation from the session as well as from the Sidners to be able to preach this morning. Uh, if they had to pick a week to be sick, this was a good week for them. Uh, totally unplanned, but it worked out well because I was able and ready. So, I hope they, and I know I'm glad, delighted to hear that they're doing well and recovering. This week in our sermon, we encounter a parable that begins just as the parable did last week with the words, there was a rich man. The fact that chapter 16 in the Gospel of Luke is bracketed by two parables with the same beginning, there was a rich man, has led some to call Luke's chapter 16 as the chapter on stewardship. And if not stewardship, then at least his chapter on the responsible use of money and possessions. Now, most of our Bibles will title this parable the rich man and Lazarus. But I think a better title might be the parable of the rich man Lazarus, and the five brothers. So let's hear the parable as Luke writes it in chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames but Abraham said child remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things but now he is comforted here and you are in agony besides all this between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and none can, come, can cross from there to us. He said, then, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. This particular parable was a pivotal influence on one of my childhood heroes. The New Testament scholar, the philosopher, the organist, and renowned missionary, Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Schweitzer began his autobiographical essay, entitled, On the Edge of the Primeval Forest, with these words. I gave up my position as professor at the University of Strasbourg. My literary work and my organ playing in order to go, as a doctor, to equatorial Africa. For the parable of the rich man and Lazarus seems to have been spoken directly to us. Here we are, and out there is Lazarus. I don't know about you. But I have never had to forage through garbage cans for food. I have never suffered from malnutrition. I have never seriously wondered about the source of my next meal. I have never languished with a disease for lack of medicine or doctors. I have never stood in line at the food bank or the unemployment office. My family has never had to live in one small cramped room. My children never had to walk to school barefoot for lack of shoes. I am not poor, and yet I do not feel rich. Maybe you know what I mean. The rich, the rich, they have no problems with bills. The rich can buy what they like and they can go where they please, whenever they please. I'm certainly not poor, but I don't feel rich. And that's probably where most of us are, feeling as though we are in that great. Big gray area in between. In the opening scene of this parable, we were introduced to the nameless rich man and to Lazarus, the poor man. Jesus tells us that the rich are rich, the poor are poor and he tells us a little bit about them. He provides no explanation for those circumstances. That's just the way the world is. Jesus says as much in his conversation to his disciples in the chapter 26 of Matthew, doesn't he? He says, the poor you will have with you always. Jesus doesn't even fault find fault with someone for being rich or for the other for being poor. He is simply presenting a contrast. And so when you think about it, things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. Anywhere we go in this world, anywhere we go in this world, we can still see that contrast. But as the story proceeds, we see the rich become poor and the poor become rich. When the the setting transitions to the afterlife, everything gets flipped upside down. In the netherworld, the tables get turned. Now in the Hebrew tradition, uh, about in Jesus's day, the place where the departed dead resided when they, for the, while they awaited, I guess you'd say, the final judgment was known as Sheol. This place Sheol was thought to be partitioned into two distinct regions Paradise and Hades. And as Jesus presents it here These compartments are far apart, but but still close enough to be within sight of each other, within earshot of each other, but separated by a great chasm that was incapable of being traversed. And the shocker of shockers, the surprise here, is that Lazarus, the poor beggar, is now at Abraham's side. Lazarus has been granted the place of honor, a place of honor, at the banquet table. He has been relieved of his earthly suffering and is seated next to the greatest patriarch of the Hebrew people. In stark contrast, The rich man writhes in torment. He's encircled by flames. He's dying of thirst. Now you may be thinking, well, here we go again. This is just another example of the Bible's penchant to castigate the rich and to deplore the economic and social exploitation of the poor and the marginalized but it's not quite so simple as that. After all, consider that the host of the banquet is Abraham himself, an extraordinarily rich man. Apparently in paradise, there are both rich and poor. And so the amount of one's possessions doesn't seem to be the disqualifying factor. No, you see, the the reversal of fortune for the rich man occurred not because of what he had, but because of who he was. There's always a social dimension to what we do and what we don't do. The social repercussion is his blindness toward Lazarus. Now notice, or I hope you notice, that there's no indication that the rich man was the cause of Lazarus's poverty in any way whatsoever. He never kicked him on his way to and from his house. But that's just the point. It's not that he doesn't care about Lazarus. It's not that he abhors Lazarus, but that he doesn't even notice Lazarus. He neglected to see the needs at his very own doorstep. As Jesus says in an earlier chapter in Luke, in chapter 12, the gospel, Jesus says, he says, everyone to whom much has been given of him will much also be required. So Jesus's point is that according to God's way of figuring, sometimes financial affluence actually betrays spiritual poverty. And it's at this point, then, where attention turns to those who are still alive. The focus shifts to the rich man's five brothers. Life's journey for them has not yet reached its conclusion. And so the rich man, wanting to spare his brothers his fate, asks that Lazarus be sent to warn them, to tell them, But Abraham insists that they shouldn't, uh, that that shouldn't be necessary. After all, they should have learned what was expected from them, expected of them from, from, from Moses and the prophets. And so we see here that each brother is going to have to answer for himself. Now I know that it is certainly possible to do good deeds and to perform righteous acts without believing in or even knowing anything about Moses and the prophets. It Happens all the time. There are extraordinary people all around who because of the law that is written in their hearts and their consciences, what we would sometimes call God's common grace, champion justice and practice mercy and live charitably in our fallen world. Those people exist. But you see, it's having been advantaged with the knowledge of Moses and the prophets that obligates the brothers. Just as being advantaged with the knowledge of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ obligates Christians. God, who has given us all things in his Son Christ, by grace alone, awaits our reasonable response of compassion and service out of gratitude for the inexhaustible gift of our salvation. in a a very, very clever ending to the parable. We don't know. We don't know what happened to the five brothers. It's left open-ended. It's an extremely well-crafted story because when we look at the five brothers, we can't help seeing ourselves. This parable challenges its hearers without giving a definitive, one-size-fits-all answer to the question it evokes. And that question is, what is my responsibility as a Christian? Well, there's no single way to answer that question. We can't do everything. We all have limitations on our time, on our resources, on our abilities. But we do know that we have all been put in a position to be able to do something. The fact is that we 21st century Americans enjoy a standard of living that would have been unimaginable for most people throughout the entire course of human history. And in that light, with that realization, what does it mean to be God's redeemed people? We all know that the Bible is full of explicit commands and implicit expectations to meet human needs and hurts compassionately. I mean, that's been drummed into us since we attended Sunday school as children. Old Testament or New Testament, we're told that God cares about those in need and wants us to care for them too. After all, there are many different possible responses to possessions, aren't there? The miser says, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. The thief says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. The collectivist says, what's yours is ours, we'll confiscate it. The redistributionist says, what's yours is theirs, we'll reallocate it. But the child of God says, what's mine is God's. I think I'll share it. And that reminds me of what someone said about sharing. He said, sharing is a positive addiction that is stronger than any negative addiction. Sharing is a thrill that makes gambling seem tame. Sharing is a kick that makes heroin seem a drag. Sharing is an excitement that makes shoplifting seem dull. Sharing is the one thing that is stronger than greed. I've read of a a teacher who told her Sunday school class this parable one Sunday, this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And after the lesson, she asked the children which one they would like to be, the rich man or Lazarus. And one precocious lad replied, I'd like to be the rich man while I'm alive and Lazarus when I die. You wonder how children pick up on things like that. But Jesus' sole point is that it doesn't work that way. My friends, it's when the knowledge of what God has done for us at last motivates us to treat others as we would like to be treated that I think we are beginning to come to terms with this admittedly challenging parable of the rich man and Lazarus and the five brothers, rich or poor or somewhere in that big gray area in between, and knowing that our journeys are not yet over. We're being reminded here that God is granting each one of us while we still live more time to respond, more time to come up with a a different conclusion, a better ending, a more fitting ending, a more glorious ending to our own life story. And if, if by God's grace, when our journeys are ended and our stories told, we happen to be anywhere near Lazarus, we shall be
2: blessed indeed. Amen.